0: Everyone has an opinion when it comes to having a baby and raising kids. Just get the epidural, there's no prize for doing it natural. In my day, we just let the baby cry until they settle themselves down. Have you tried sage oil? And so many more comments, most of them unsolicited. Welcome to the Birth and Parenting Things Podcast. My name is Kim, and I've got opinions too. I'm kind of an expert on birth. I've also managed to raise three babies into young adults. I'm here to offer evidence-based information, stories, personal experiences on birth, parenting, and everything in between. So let's do this. Hello, and welcome to Birth and Parenting Things Podcast. I'm your host, Kim Fernandez. All right, let's do this. So... Last week, I mentioned that I had started Weight Watchers. Well, I didn't record last week, so two and a half weeks in now. And yeah, it's going okay. Um, every So I have a cheat day on Saturday where I clearly ruin any, any progress I've made throughout the week. Um, this week was, or last Saturday was actually just a giant burger fest and <laughs> every carb known to man. But the good news is I haven't quite lost my mind yet. Though I think I am going through, I just realized maybe this headache that I've been having for a few days is a bit of a, a carb, uh, what do you say? Um, uh, detox because I'm not, I'm still eating carbs, I'm just not eating a significant amount of them like, like I used to. So we'll see how things progress. Um, it is making me a little bit more adventurous as far as uh, cooking goes, which is good. But I've discovered that Healthy Fresh, which is, um, uh, we get that for three three nights of the week, Um, yeah, not all that Weight Watchers friendly, (laughs) but I'm trying to make some, uh, changes to the, to what I eat and consume. So I, during the day so that I can actually eat the food. Anyways, I, I may have mentioned I lost quite a significant amount of weight, uh, last time I went on Weight Watchers. So I'm hoping that that will be the case again, but I do have to get into the moving side of things. I'm, again, I'm not mentally there for that yet, but we'll see. So how were how is everybody else managing their, uh, their COVID-15 or COVID-20 or COVID-30? Um, I'm thankful that I actually only gained about five pounds during COVID, but definitely was not eating healthy. So, but I have significantly gotten I haven't been, I've been purchasing the snacks, but I've been purchasing snacks that I don't necessarily like. So that's been helpful too. And of course, the fact that you have to write it down or put it into the app has been uh, helpful in getting me to go, oh, it's not worth it. (laughs) So, so let's talk about what we're going to talk about today. I chosen a couple of topics for today. Um... The first one is going to be kind of the leg-crossing, cringy topic of episiotomies, and I know you just did a Kegel, but uh, I thought, why not? I had I saw a a post somewhere that said um, no one should ever have episiotomies, and it was very it was very kind of uh, aggressive in in its stance of that. However, I think that's, I don't necessarily believe that. I think sometimes it can be a tool that can you that can be used to help. And I'll explain that with a story sort of towards the end. So I started to do a little bit of digging and I knew a little bit about episiotomy, sort of where they came from and whatnot, but I found some other interesting information. So The first instructions for episiotomy were found in a 17, yes, 1742 book called Treaties of Midwifery in Three Parts. However, it was listed in that book as a last resort procedure to try. So if things weren't going well and and this could help, then it could be used, but it shouldn't be the first thing that is tried uh, when things aren't going well. Then in the 1800s, when anesthetics and germ theory were introduced, so yeah, it wasn't until the 1800s that we actually knew about germs, Um, and the consequences of of episiotomies uh, were still being made. So while they were still rarely happening, it it could lead to an infection. Then in the 1920s, the obstetrics, when obstetrics kind of changed and shifted sort of what they do into, um, actively preventing problems in childbirth and twilight sleep was introduced and babies were being born routinely, uh, to unconscious pregnant, uh, people with forceps and, and, uh, active pushing wasn't happening. Episiotomies were common, um, the norm because we needed, they needed the space to get the forceps in to remove the baby. So this was actually even happening up into the mid seventies, that twilight sleep and forcep delivery. So you could actually know somebody who was born this way or actually gave birth this way. Um, so at that point, I think it was stated that 80% of vaginal births ended with an episiotomy then. Epidurals, which were sort of introduced prior to this, um, sort of became more in fashion, not necessarily like that word, but um, twilight sleep was sort of phased out and epidurals were used more routinely for birth. And as a result, um, the birthing parent could actively be pushing during that time period. But episiotomies didn't actually go away at that point. So it was believed that doing them helped prevent pelvic floor damage during the pushing stage. Then, after back in sort of, uh, late nineties, um, several studies were done and big reviews of these studies were done and determined that restrictive episiotomy policy, which means, um using episiotomies rarely or only if medically necessary, saw that birthing parents experience less severe perineal trauma, less posterior perineal trauma, so that's, and close your ears, um, tearing into the rectum. They required less stitches and fewer healing complications with no difference in occurrence of pain, urinary incontinence, painful sex, or severe perineal or vaginal trauma after birth. So that restrictive episiotomy policy saw there being benefits to not doing episiotomies. And then at that point, I think it became, I think in my view, um, mainstream media got hold of this uh, idea and uh, birthing parents realized that, oh, I don't have to be cut, (laughs) then don't. So at that point, then there was kind of a rapid decline of episiotomy rates. And right now in my area, um, depending on the hospital where you are giving birth, the episiotomy rate is anywhere from five to 10%. So really not done all that uh, commonly. Many times episiotomies are actually not necessary. And sometimes just a little bit of patience can go a long way in lowering the need for an episiotomy. I attended a birth once where uh, things were going actually quite quickly. And the, uh, it was a much smaller hospital. So the actual OB was in, and there was no resident, I don't think. The OB was actually in uh, a surgery, a cesarean birth. So a nurse had to actually um, deliver the baby. But I think at that point, if a doctor had been there, because of the way things were going with the birth, that an episiotomy would have been used, but because the nurse wasn't um, sort of trained or re- allowed to do an episiotomy, they had to do a lot of stretching and a lot of coaching and a lot of you know support and whatnot of the perineum to get baby to come out. So as a result, there was no episiotomy. And I had another uh, client where the um during the pushing stage the uh the doctor the obstetrician uh suggested that they wanted to do an episiotomy because I think in that case the perineum was actually very very tight but and there was conversation between the each contraction so every time there was a break in the in the pushing uh, between the contractions the care provider would ask if it was okay to do it the client would ask some questions and then get some answers and then the pushing would start again and this happened about three times with uh, questions back and forth and then eventually after about the third contraction the uh, the client just stopped talking. and as a result never gave their consent to the episiotomy and ended up the doctor at that point then had to you know again do some more stretching and and you know um, have a little bit more patience and then the baby was born without an episiotomy and if I recall not very much tearing either so I think sometimes we have to, if we can just be a little bit more patient with this little creature coming into the world, then maybe we wouldn't need as many episiotomies as we see. Now, however, there are times when getting an episiotomy is necessary. Back when I first became a doula, this may have been like my fourth or fifth client, like not very much if not very long into this, maybe around 10, I can't remember. I had a client who, um, we got to the hospital and they were about five centimeters dilated when we got there and they were from Hong Kong and she spoke English and Chinese and, uh, her partner only spoke Chinese So as a result, we were walking the halls and walking the halls and walking the halls and walking the halls. And the partner was actually in the room reading the newspaper. Um, And we just walked and walked and walked and walked. And And every couple, every few minutes or so when a contraction came on, she would stop. She would breathe. And then we would start walking again. And this happened for at least a few hours And then it got to the point where I guess the staff were not seeing visibly much uh, progression with the labor itself. So they said, well, we're going to check you because we're pretty sure that you're going to need some help because your labor clearly isn't moving, very moving along as they would like. So they checked her, they did a vaginal exam and it turned out she was actually nine centimeters dilated. (laughs) So, yeah, things were progressing the way they were supposed to. And then we walked for and as they were setting up the room and whatnot, it almost became where, you know, that pressure and that urge to push sort of came on. and and when that happens, it's not uncommon for the birthing parent to kind of go, If they haven't already go sort of internally and their inner cave mama comes out, unfortunately, which I love when this happens. So I love it when inner cave mama comes out and they really sort of dig in and, you know, get this baby out. Unfortunately, uh, this client's inner cave mama didn't speak English and didn't understand English in any shape or form. So as the pushing went on, um, her doctor actually was in the hospital at the time and he did speak Chinese and, but it was a different doctor. He wasn't the doctor on call. So the one that we had, um, sort of sitting there and, you know, we were going through the motions of pushing, but you could see on the monitors that baby's heart rate was not doing well. And it became apparent that, you know, we needed to get this baby out fairly quickly. And as a result, um, the care providers were not happy with what was happening. So they actually started to, you know, prep the room and, and whatnot for getting her moved into a cesarean. Well, okay. That's, that really kind of crushed me at that point. And I was imploring her on how to push and, and bearing down and, and, you know, all that pressure downward and things like that. And, but she didn't understand a word I was saying. And I turned to her partner and I was like, come on, like, you've got to please understand me. (laughs) And she, he did not understand a word I was saying. So at that point then, I guess her doctor had heard that she was pushing. So he came in and it was funny because I, I vividly remember a few things about this birth. Um, and he, his pager had gone off and he actually looked at the pager and then handed it to the nurse and said, just tell them I'm at a very uneventful birth so he came in and took the place of the doctor that was actually there and spoke to her in her language and she pushed he spoke to her in her language again and she pushed and then he cut a tiny episiotomy just off to the side they don't normally do them sort of straight down they usually do them off to the side and at that point he spoke to her again. She pushed and this baby literally flew out. I mean caught air. I've never seen a baby actually catch air. So this baby got literally shot out into his arms and I was standing there going, oh my god, (laughs) that was the coolest thing ever. And I remember there being a med student standing beside me And he was kind of standing there stone-faced and whatnot. And I'm looking at him going, oh my God, did you see that? That was the coolest thing ever. And he's looking at me like I'm something he scraped off the bottom of his shoe. Because, you know, male med students. Um, And I was like, dude, you have no idea how cool that was. Please, for God's sake, just go back to being, you know, whatever it was you were going to do, a dermatologist or a podiatrist or something. Because you clearly don't appreciate the amazingness of birth. But in that particular case, that episiotomy really kind of saved this client from having an unnecessary cesarean. So yes, they are oftentimes not necessary, but they are many times can really prevent any sort of, uh, they can prevent further trauma so if care providers think that this baby is going to be coming down quite rapidly and maybe doing a lot of damage they will sometimes do a preventative tear uh, preventative episiotomy to prevent massive tearing particularly if it's going to happen into the rectum which can cause all manner of long-term issues um If the perineum is very, very tight and they can't get baby out to any other way, um, such as in the case of the client I just mentioned, it can be beneficial. Um, But Or if a instrumental delivery is necessary. So in the case of a vacuum extraction or forcep delivery, though it isn't a one-to-one ratio where that happens, um, if a instrumental delivery becomes necessary, it can help uh, deliver a baby who may be in distress and is low enough to keep coming um, and low enough to keep coming out the vaginal area. But we need to get baby out quickly. Or if the birthing parent has nothing left to give, pushing and they just need what the care providers call a little bit of help so if that's happening sometimes uh, an episiotomy will uh, play into uh, the mix so a lot of the information that I got some of the historical information and statistics that I got were from a study uh, or actually from a website called gizmodo And a study called Episiotomy for Vaginal Birth by Guillermo Caroli and Luciano McGuini. And that study can be found on uh, PMC. So I hope that has been enlightening for you. Um, I will suggest uh, if you are pregnant and you are moving in that direction of giving birth, that I recommend you talk to your care provider about what their thoughts of episiotomies are. And when they think they might be necessary. Also, if an episiotomy is something you'd really like to try and avoid, um, I really suggest you look into seeing a pelvic floor physiotherapist, um, as well as doing uh, perineal massage. And you can find that information usually on the internet. Um, And of course, creating a birth plan or wish list to express your desires uh, to your care provider and the care provider who is actually doing the birth, which may not actually be your care provider. So you want to make sure that um, you let them know that you don't want one unless uh, it becomes medically necessary. So speak up and, and talk to your care providers about what your options are and try and take steps to... Um, helping to prevent the need for one in the weeks leading up to your actually going into labor. All right. So I hope that's been enlightening um, and it hasn't been too cringeworthy for you. And if you have any questions or comments, uh, please feel free to send them to birthandparentythings at gmail.com and I will happily answer them. I'll happily read them out on air as well. And I hope you will stick around for the next segment on parenting, where we're going to talk about night terrors. You're like, what the hell is that? All right. Thank you. And we're back. So... I didn't quite know what to do as far as a topic for parenting this week. So I would super appreciate if anybody has anything, if they want to, uh, any topic they want to be discussed, they want me to research, they want me to look into, um, get my opinion on, um, email me at birth and things podcast, uh, sorry, birth and parentythings at gmail.com and uh, I'd be happy to look into any of that stuff for you if there's something that you need to know. All right, so we're going to talk about night terrors, and my first son actually experienced this, and it was a very scary situation, actually. We weren't quite sure what was happening. He was in daycare. He was about two, um, two, maybe two, two and a half. So I'm not sure. I don't believe my second son was born yet. I was either pregnant or, um, we were sort of mulling that part over. Anyways, he would wake up in the night screaming bloody murder. And it was usually around 10 to 11 that it happened. And it didn't happen every night, but it did happen actually quite frequently. His eyes would be open. He'd be talking. Um, but he didn't appear actually to be actually awake. He It's like he was talking, but he wasn't talking to us. It's like he was seeing things, but they weren't there. Um, And then after a few minutes to upwards of a half an hour or so, he would finally settle down and go back to sleep. But it was clear that he wasn't awake when it was happening because when he woke up in the morning, he didn't remember any of it and it didn't affect him during the day in any way, shape or form. So we didn't really know what to do and we were very concerned about what was happening. So of course at the time, like what you do now, you Google, but of course at the time, um, I took to the mom groups, which 21 years ago would have been Yahoo groups. Um, Many of you probably don't even know what those are. And someone had mentioned night terrors. I thought, oh, I looked into it and yeah, it all seemed to fit. So we figured at that point that that's what it was. So according to uh, kidshealth.org, night terrors are not a cause for concern, which at the time we were extremely concerned. Because kids are in a deep sleep when it happens, they actually have no recollection afterwards or in the morning that it's actually happened. The cause of the night terrors apparently is an over-arousal of the central nervous system. So it happens usually uh, two to three hours after being put to bed or after falling asleep. And that kind of fit because he went to bed at eight and it usually happened between 10 and 11, pardon me. And it happens when your child is sort of transitioning from a very deep sleep into a lighter sleep, which we all do. We all have sort of a deep sleep cycle and a light sleep cycle, and then a deep, and then a light, and we sort of transition through these throughout the night. And for most of us, it's usually not an issue. In fact, some of us actually as adults will sort of wake up, but then roll over and go back to sleep, and we don't even necessarily know that it happened. However, when this happens with someone who's having a night terror, that transition actually can result in a fear reaction. So we found that my son had them when he didn't have a nap during the day or a long enough nap during the day. So according, again, according to kidshealth.org, it generally happens when your child is being uh, overtired, uh, stressed. (laughs) We're in a pandemic. Of course, everybody's tired and stressed. Sleeping in a new place. So if they go from, you know, because we had... We had cottage trips as well, so that they usually happened in the first few days of going to the cottage for vacation. Not getting enough sleep, so if he didn't get naps during the day or a decent enough nap during the day, we did have issues, and apparently... Um, there is a bit of a genetic component. So apparently 80% of those with night terrors will have a family member with sleep disturbances. And in hindsight, uh, my ex-husband, he was a night talker. He would talk in his sleep when things were very stressed, um, or, uh, he was overtired and things like that. So that kind of fit too. But if you have a child that's having night terrors, what can you do? Well, first off, don't panic. It's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, It's not a good thing, but it's not necessarily something that's going to cause any issues uh, later on. Reducing your child's stress levels is going to be a good idea. And of course, again, we're in a pandemic, we're shut inside, life is stressful for all of us, but try and do your best. A really good, um, bedtime routine that you do all every night. So even on weekends and things like that, we found was very critical. Um, it got, we had done sort of very good bedtime routines throughout. Um, but of course in the summertime, things got a little bit more lax, but having a good bedtime routine, uh, can be critical for making that sleep transition a little bit easier, making sure they're getting enough rest during the day. Now, usually by two, two and a half, your child is probably not napping per se, or um, actually having naps. My kids didn't. Actually, my daughter sort of gave her naps up at the ninth month. I wanted to shoot myself. Um, But even if your child isn't napping, at least having some downtime, some rest time. I think sometimes we think that our kids need to be constantly amused and constantly doing things and constantly uh, in programs and you know all of this stuff let's back up a bit we also you need a rest every now and then and so does your child Um, and that can also help reduce the stress levels as well for for both of you actually so even just having some downtime where you're just sitting and relaxing and reading or even just watching tv I would suggest also that uh, at night when you are in your sort of bedtime routine is turning off the screens, um, turning off the iPads and the TV and the phones and all of that stuff and just focusing on getting some good sleep. Um, We also did this suggestion, so waking them up uh, before the time that they usually have it seemed to work, so we always kind of had it around the same time each night. Um, So what we would do is one of us would go in and sort of gently rouse him um, until he was in sort of a bit of a drowsy sleep and then sit with him until he fell back to sleep, which seemed to help as well. And we did that for probably a few months and eventually making sure that he got rest during the day, which wasn't always easy. So we had to have a conversation with his daycare uh, provider, which was a home daycare, um, about making sure that he got some rest or at least some quiet time during the day because I was working at this point point. Um, and they didn't always do it which was super frustrating um, but eventually after kind of losing my shit on them <laughs> excuse my language um, they finally sort of bought into this you know that he needs to have some rest because they had other kids and they had older kids as well and, uh, it wasn't always helpful or conducive because of course he didn't want to go for a nap, but at least if, can we have everybody have some quiet time during the day, at least for half an hour to an hour, that would be great. Um, and eventually they finally bought into it and, uh, it was super frustrating at the time. In fact, I got to the point where I was like, fine, like, if you're not going to do that, can you come to my house at 10 and 11 o'clock at night and actually sit there with him while he screams his head off? Because quite frankly, I can't do that anymore. And keep in mind, I'm pretty sure I was pregnant at the time too. So there was some more stress for the poor little guy. Um, and, uh, and yeah, it was not, uh, it was not a good situation Actually, I should probably tell the story at another date about what else he did when I was pregnant to uh, sort of manage his stress. (laughs) Anyways, that's another story. So eventually, after a few months, things went away and things calmed down and we never really had another incident after that. We just made sure that we made sleep a priority and we made rest a priority, so Anyways, if you are experiencing night terrors or unexplained screaming in the middle of the night uh, with, from your child, consider that it might be a night terror and have a look into it and talk to their care provider about what can be done and to make sure that it isn't anything else happening. Okay. Um, yeah. So that's it. Very, this is going to be a very short podcast uh, this week, I think. Um, I'm not, uh, I haven't delved into too much that requires a lot of talking. So anyways, I hope you have found this beneficial and stay tuned for our final segment on uh, weird and wonderful things. We're going to talk about pregnant athletes. All right. Thanks. we're back for our final segment. We're talking about pregnant athletes. The reason we're talking about this is, um, the other day, uh, currently while I'm recording this, the Scotties tournament is on. Now, if you're, if you're not into curling, you probably have no idea what that is. Um, but my oldest son, who obviously I've been talking about, um, he loves curling, uh, particularly women's curling. So he's not quite so fond of the men curling, but, um, the, Scotty's tournament is on and he made a comment that uh, his favorite Skip, who was one of the four on the ice, uh, Rachel Holman, is actually eight months pregnant during this particular tournament. And it turned out that she wasn't the only one in this turn in this particular tournament that was having a quarantine baby so it got me thinking has this happened in any other sports and i was pretty sure it had so i did a little digging and i found uh according to sheknows.com uh there are actually quite a number of them they had quite a few but i only pulled out uh just a couple of them Oh, we've got who we got? Anita Spring competed in the 1996 Olympics in beach volleyball while four months pregnant. I can't imagine sort of diving into the sand with um, that kind of weight, uh, ex- excess weight. Though if this was her first, it probably wasn't. Uh, probably wasn't all that noticeable. And of course, I was still vomiting up until the fourth month. Um, who else do we have? We have Archer Cornelia Fole, who competed in the 2004 Olympics while, uh, 30 weeks pregnant. Of course it was archery, but that can also sort of throw off your center of balance, which can, uh, really affect your, obviously how you are, uh, competing. And then an amazing one, which I thought was quite cool. Speed skater Martina Valsepia, sorry. Val Sapina won bronze uh, at the 2014 Olympics while pregnant with twins, speed skating. That requires um, balance. Now, it didn't say how pregnant she was. And according from the picture I saw, it couldn't have been that much. But still, I would have been vomiting all over the ice. We also have Magda Yulin a figure skater who won gold at the 1920s, yes, 1920s Olympic uh, while being four months pregnant. Um, So I don't know if they did so much jumping and whatnot that they do in the Olympics, uh, the figure skating that they do now, but still an impressive feat. Uh, Lisa uh, Brown Miller was eight weeks pregnant when she won gold as a hockey player in the 1998 Olympics. And if you've ever seen... Uh, women's hockey, particularly in the Olympics, it's rough. That's a lot happening. Um, So yeah, that that could have been bad news, but they did it. And finally, at the end of the list, going full circle, uh, Christy Moore, Canadian curler, won silver with their team at the 2010 Olympics, and they were six months pregnant at the time. So that's super cool. I think it's very easy for us, um, as soon as we become pregnant, especially for the grandmas and the aunties and, and other people to tell you that, you know, you're weak and you're helpless and you need to take it easy and put your feet up and don't do too much. But that isn't necessarily true. And these athletes really have proven it to us. And especially if they've worked for so long and so hard to get to this point Um, why do we need to stop? Why do we need to not uh, achieve the goal that we had been working so very hard for? However, it is important that you listen to your body and not start any new intense workouts while pregnant. But you can definitely keep doing what you were doing before if you were doing, or or however, if you are um, in a high risk pregnancy, or if you've had multiple miscarriages, then obviously we want you to Uh, Be more careful and listen to what your care provider uh, is telling you. I did have a client um, many, many years ago, actually, that was doing a prior to getting pregnant and during the pregnancy was doing a high impact step class right up into the end, two days before labor started. In fact, she went through multiple, um, classes towards the end because she was trying to get this labor started. (laughs) And I think everybody, she mentioned everybody in the class was, um, kind of shocked and amazed that she was doing this and why the hell was she doing it? Um, I've also, uh, know somebody who was training for a marathon during their pregnancy. Now, of course, they've been training before getting pregnant, um, but so it wasn't definitely anything new to them. But try to remember that getting pregnant doesn't make you have the ability to become a marathon runner. So especially if you've been a couch potato leading up to that. So you can still move. You can still work out. You can still do the things that you were doing before. You're not an invalid as soon as you become pregnant. But as I say... Listen to your body, listen to your care provider, listen to your baby and keep moving. Even if it's slow, even if it's, you know, some light yoga or if it's jogging down the street, whatever you were doing, whatever makes you happy, whatever makes you comfortable. But movement is important in pregnancy and it's important in labor too. So, all right. So there's your weird and wonderful, uh, things that have happened in the world with pregnancy So please, please, please rate, review, and subscribe. Um, Tell a friend if you enjoyed this podcast. Uh, Share your comments and stories with me to birthandparentythings at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Instagram at Toronto Doula Group. And remember to wear a mask, wash your hands, and please let's stop the spread. I need a haircut. (laughs) Have a good one. Bye.